to Bibby, has the open shot. Welcome to the King's Insider Podcast on CSNCalifornia.com. Sponsored by Max Muscle Sports Nutrition. Introducing your host, Sacramento King's Insider, James Ham. Welcome to the King's Insider Podcast on NBC Sports California. I am James Ham. Joining me on the other line is Doug Christie, and we have a special guest today. We're bringing in the original owner of the Sacramento Kings, Mr. Greg Lukenbill. What's going on, Greg? How are you? Well, like many other Sacramentans in this region, uh, I'm living the dream right now with the way the economy is and how great everything's going in the Sacramento area. Unless you're homeless. Unless you're homeless. <laughs> no, that's true. There's a few of those out there, aren't there? Uh, so, you know what? We, we want to talk to you. It is the fifth anniversary of the uh, the Seattle ordeal. and I guess just how how excited are you as the guy who brought the Kings here from Kansas City? How excited are you to have the Kings still here and to know that you survived not just one but two relocations and now you have this big, beautiful, shiny building downtown, just uh, a beacon for the for Sacramento Kings fans and really for the, the region? Well, I'm, I'm just really ecstatic for everybody who lives in this area to have the level of the quality of life raised by the construction of that facility in Sacramento. I think that's the most important thing. When I, I was just talking to somebody this morning about the reality that the uh, when I was a kid growing up here, we couldn't get Ringling Brothers here because we didn't have a facility that Ringling Brothers uh, was it was big enough for Ringling Brothers, so they wouldn't come to Sacramento. And and so it took until I built the temporary arena in '85. So there was a gap there of almost 40 years when Ringling would not come to Sacramento after World War II because there was no facility in Sacramento that would house the circus. So they we had a second-class circus that came through here, and, and it, that was a lot about the Giants moving west and, you know, the Solons leaving Emmitsville getting torn down, Sacramento being relegated to a second-class status. And and, it, and honestly, uh, that's what I love about about what David Stern did and what Kevin Johnson did, which, because, the, you know, the, by all rights, um, was a miracle. That's all I can say. So yeah, I mean that team should have been gone. And I would, you know, if you stop and think about it, if Kevin's not mayor, I mean, what a, it's almost like divine intervention to have that thing happen the way it worked out. And the genius of the, you know, sort of basically what I would call monetizing the parking lot in the city garages. So the reality of it is, is that the combination of things that happened really truly were uh, almost like destiny for Sacramento. It's, it, it kind of is in the spirit of the history of. Sacramento from the gold rush to the to the Transcontinental Railroad, and that is that you know the indomitable spirit of Sacramento back in those days when they were we were here to get flooded with 15 feet of water over the top of Sacramento, we're burning down every other day, kind of like what's going on in California every day right now. Uh, it just seems like um, Sacramento overcame so many obstacles to survive, and, and it was because of the team that the facility got built. So thank you, David Stern, and thank you, Kevin Johnson. Uh, Mr. Lukenbill, when you talk about the the ability to transition into an owner from you know an entrepreneur, and all of a sudden you said, you know what, I want to be an NBA owner. I'm going to bring basketball to Sacramento. 
just talk about, you know, that transition and in, in trying to make all of that happen for Sacramento. Well, um, ironically, I talked to Charlie Finley in 1978, and he was willing to sell the ace to me for $10 million. And in the 70s, $10 million was more money than I had, I can tell you. And, and uh, But he just basically said, listen, when you get real, give me a call. I'm, I'm willing to deal. And bullshit walks and money talks. It's a direct quote from Charlie Finley. So uh, uh, after that, it was, uh, I, you know, I was just interested in trying to raise the bar on the quality of life here for the same frustrations that I just articulated a few minutes ago. And that is that just try to make this a, a, a better place for my kids to grow up in. Because to me, it was about, you know, when I, I was very blessed, and we're all very blessed to live in this incredible, uh, incredible uh, weather and climate and agricultural production and so forth. It's an amazing place to live. I guess probably why you're here. And, the Seattle isn't trapped yep. over either. But the Sacramento area and the Sacramento Valley is a distinctly unique area on the planet, in my opinion. It's a really a wonderful place to live. And so we've got all these great benefits that God gave us through the, the Sierras and the water and the and the agriculture and so forth, but uh, and the temperate climate and the and the and the, the productivity of agriculture. But what we don't have here is a, a very you know business acclimated kind of an environment. So it's tough. And so it was a tough struggle for me. I mean, I was just telling a story the other day to somebody about how the city council told me, you know, if you could, because I had, I bought the property in the seventies for it to build a sports complex. I got there at I-80 and I-5 and, and, um, and, it, but it was all in zones of permanent agriculture, which says a lot about the business climate in Sacramento. It's better today, but Kevin Johnson's the transition that made it better. It seems to be a better attitude today about business in Sacramento than there was back then, but that's only because we just went through that, cataclysmic financial collapse that made us round zero in the in the foreclosure market, housing foreclosure market nationwide. And that really was, I mean, this literally was the epicenter of the uh, default collapses that basically brought California to its knees, if you think about it. Thank God for Jerry Brown. He's the guy that started the recovery, by the way. I didn't do much to answer your question about the ownership, did I? But oh, I was surveying no, 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 the climate. No. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say not at all. You know, uh, uh, interesting, a, a quote that I that I read was, you said the arena is the community indoor living room. And when you talk about epicenter, uh, to Ham's first question, now with Golden One Center, do you see, still see things that way, even though now, you know, 100%, yeah, it just, it, it, yeah, I mean, we're growing, we're growing up a little bit. I, the, the thing for me, I see it probably differently than most people, but the reality of it is, is that, you know, as I, you know, I, I, my frustration, and I could sense it in the timing of the change of the economic environment nationally, and and what was going on in, Sa- in Sacramento and California. You could feel the, the change. In fact, Vic Fazio and I had had uh, breakfast or something together back in the late '80s, and he just said to me, "Greg, the new rules in Congress are ABC, any place but California." And that was when H.W. Bush became president. He said, "Look at man, there." And we did. If you look back at the, at the change in the in our our status from a national standpoint to uh, in the '80s to where it is today, the difference is Ronald Reagan being president and the fact that we went through a about a pretty substantial double digit surplus in tax revenue coming in from the feds to the other direction with tax revenue leaving California. It hasn't stopped since then. So uh, we've got about a probably 15 negative, 15 to 20 percent negative tax impact where the federal government's taking money out of California and spending in other parts of the country today. But you can see the change in the country and what that's doing. It's actually changing the 
the economics of the country, and it actually made the competitiveness of other cities. And I, I, I compare it to other capital cities. Like, I mean, just think about it. I'll just run a few off like Phoenix, Salt Lake City, or Nashville, or Wally, or yeah. Austin, or, uh, you know, and look at Atlanta and so forth. And there's so many of those cities that have become national-scale cities that have a much more pro-business, appreciative environment with a deeper and longer history. They don't have the benefits that we do. They don't have the weather that we have or the agriculture or the water or close to everything or California. And so all those things are so great for us that we just take them for granted. Other places have to compete for business. And so places like, look at even Alabama with that big announcement they made yesterday and today about uh, that billion and a half dollar plant that they cut, which is a cutting edge deal. You know, I mean, it was a, a brilliant thing to bring jobs into Alabama, 4,000 jobs into um, around the, I don't know what part of Alabama is. It's hard. I mean, I think Alabama, I think Tuscaloosa, because I used to fly to the University of Alabama years ago. But the point, Doug, is, is that we've gone backwards. I mean, back in those days, we probably were legitimately the 20th or so market in the United States and deserve a shot at, at a national franchise. Today, we probably dropped at least 10 slots. We're not, we're not as competitive today as we were 30 years ago, as crazy as that sounds. Because the world's different today. You know, sports is different today. Television money is different today. And a, and a, and a pro-business environment is different today. And the, and the core issue that they're looking for is they're looking for, just as was the state of Alabama, and, and I used to be fighting fighting the state of Indiana or, you know, Arizona, or most of, these, most of these states I was battling were capital cities in states where the city and the state were unified. I, my original offer in deal was with to buy the Indiana Pacers about three or four months before I ended up making the deal on the Kings. And that ended up slipping away largely because of Mayor Hudnett and the fact that it was in the capital city of Indiana. And the state actually got involved in saving it as well, the Pacers, because they had a deal cooking for the football team next. And look how, look how far Indianapolis has come since I made a deal, yeah. you know, in 83 to buy the Pacers. Look how far they've come. They've got the football team. They've got the Super Bowl. I think they were on their second facility for a third facility for basketball since then. And, and also the uh, tremendous, I think they're on their second football stadium, but they've had the Super Bowl there. And, you know, the same with Phoenix. I mean, look at these cities that have come up from, come up that were way behind Sacramento, California, 35 years ago. And look where they are today, relatively speaking, where they have not one, but two franchises. Take take Nashville, for example. I mean, Nashville got the hockey team and the football team. We, there's no reason we shouldn't have the Raiders deal other than what happened internally in the partnership. But that was that was the, that's when the window closed right there for Sacramento. And and yeah. thank God for what how we did save save. And these guys have a tough nut to crack with this with this hockey uh, with the uh, soccer team. Um, I, I I really uh, I'm glad I'm not involved in that. To be honest, with you. that's going to be a tough nut to crack competitively against uh, cities like Detroit and Cincinnati, which are Eastern cities. And, and, and basically they have, you know, you got Procter and Gamble and you got Ford, right. Or not Ford, all the auto dealers in Detroit. How do you compete with that? We don't have any big companies here. There's no big corporate headquarters right. here. There's no decent sized businesses here that support the franchise, the way you were compete competed with by other markets. In other words, the competition in those markets, whether it's Phoenix, Indianapolis, Nashville, those are old school, Fortune 100, Fortune 300, 500 companies that are in those markets that are so much bigger than uh, anything that we have to compete with. And so we have to come at it very differently. And it's, it's a tough nut to crack, to be honest with you. You know, Greg, you brought up the Raiders in that, in that conversation right there. And, I mean, I've walked 
through the the backside of of Arco. I've seen the baseball field, the you know, sort of the bones of a baseball field that are hiding out there. Um, but how close were the Raiders? I mean, we're seeing them now moving to Las Vegas, and Al is gone. But how close were they to coming to Sacramento in the well? I had 80s? some of the strangest. Yeah, let me just say it to you this way, okay? I, I we had a I basically had a deal done with Al Davis, and you know the partnership was not in support of completing the transaction. You just got to remember that back in those days, I got the city council to support what I was doing. I had everybody in Sacramento except my primary partner in support of the deal, and that's the reason the deal didn't make. But I'll tell you how close that was. I, you know, I was dealing with with uh, Joe Alioto. Joe Alioto was, I don't know, you guys are pretty young. Joe Alioto was the mayor of San Francisco back in the day, and he was uh, Al Davis's personal attorney. I was dealing with this famous uh, McDonough, I think was his last name. I can't remember exactly. Boston, Boston uh, sports guy. You guys might know the name. I've, I've forgotten his name, and I think he just passed recently, but he was he was very close to Al Davis. I got, I got calls from I, John Madden came to my office. I mean, I had people from all over the United States. But I'll tell you how great that deal was, okay? You know why that deal made sense? It's really simple. It wasn't about us. It was about regionalizing the impact of who we are. And so we had deals. This is the thing that the way you, that I thought about it from a business standpoint. We had deals with people in Reno, and we had deals with people in Las Vegas to buy suites and um, box-type seats in the stadium for the Raiders. That's how big it was. And, of course, I'd already dreamed up the title sponsorship thing. So the concept of, of you know, basically having Oakland come to Sacramento, wouldn't that be a reversal in, in reality? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and it would have been great. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, that's what made it make so much sense. That's what Al loved about it. It didn't. It, he didn't. You know, he didn't just dis, dislocate the franchise. So he liked the idea of bringing thirty, forty thousand people from Oakland to Sacramento to a brand new stadium that he had control of, and he would have been the managing partner, which would have been a dream come true. For Neil, me, that was one of the two pieces of the deal that made sense. That the, the that was actually the secondary deal with the fact that we brought in national recognition from Vegas and Reno, and we actually regionalized the business impact of the, uh, you know, being the state capital of California. That was really what it came down to. But the primary reason was the television money because we couldn't compete as a small market with the big markets. And the reality of it was that for us, uh, having, being, you know, having the football team here made us the Green Bay of, uh, the NFL, just like they were, we probably would have been the, the second or like, you know, a, we would have been a very small market in the NFL and what makes the NFL democratic. It's ironic, but it's the, ultimately it's the socialist franchise uh, market for, for professional sports because everybody in the NFL shares revenues equally. So if you're green Bay, you're getting the same revenues in New York city. That was the genius of what they did and the manner in which they, uh, you know, basically turn the entire, football industry into a team effort. And when I say team effort, I mean all what is today, 32 franchises operate in one unified basis, which is very difficult to do in the business world, to be perfectly candid with, because generally we're set up on a competitive basis. But they did such a wonderful job with that that they they ended up 
making their they, they were competing with other sports rather than competing amongst themselves and so they managed to unify the entire nfl into a genius of a franchise model that even today is by far the largest i mean they lose it a little ground because of the concussion issues and other issues like that but for the most part the nfl today still reigns supreme as the number one uh, most popular sport in the country, even though I think basketball is rising quickly these days. Greg, uh, let me take you back. We've got so far. We've gotten so far afield. I forgot. You know, we're talking about oh, how close is the Raiders deal? Yeah, it was a done deal. It just you know, yeah, we had, we got you know we got the city council on a nine zero vote to give Al Davis fifty million dollars of the franchise fee to move here. They would he would have we would have had twenty five percent of the Raiders, twenty five percent of the stadium and the arena and the team, and Al would have had seventy five percent of the Kings. He was, Al was very focused on the Kings. We used to talk about it all the time. And, you know, he would have been a much better managing partner than I would have because he loved, he lived and breathed that. That was that, that competitive DNA was in his spirit every day, no matter what sport it was. So he was very focused on the players, the talent and, and so forth and, and things that could be done to make the franchise better. We used to talk about that. I really love the guy. He was a great, he was a very straightforward, very, he does. His reputation wasn't deserved in my opinion. I really thought Al Davis was a straight shooting guy. He never did a single thing that was, it was anything but forthright and honest uh, and diplomatic with me. Greg, let me take you back to 1989, what most people know you for. Uh, you're sitting courtside. Uh, there's rain coming into the arena, and you say, you know what, I'm going up there. In your mind, uh, what said to you, you know what, I need to do this instead of having somebody else do it to make sure that the game went on? Well, number one, it was, that, that's not exactly the sequence of events, but sure. But I get the trend of the concept. Okay, I, I had a suite back in those days, and I was sitting in the suite, and I gave them, and I had a walkie-talkie in there, so I could tell what was, I could hear what was going on with the people in the building because they were all in one unified communication system. So my concern became, okay, so you guys go fix it. All right, there's a problem. You guys fix it because from a management standpoint, you don't want to interfere with the people that are working for you. You want them to have the capacity to solve problems themselves. So I let it go for about 15 minutes, okay? Then I got the word. They came up to me and said, Greg, they're, they're, New York's going to cancel the game. Uh, they're going to call the game on the floor. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Because, of course, I would calculated the damages to something like that in such a precarious situation where we were – we'd already been to Philadelphia that year, and Philadelphia was on the, on the home stretch here on their West coast swing. And there was only, Doug, you know, that there's only one swing each year between the conferences. I mean, between the going back and forth from the East to the West. And so mm-hmm. once you make those, um, once you make that swing, you're basically done. So how do you finish the game? If, if they go, if they move on and they don't complete this game, we have an incomplete game. We would have been a, like, a, they, we'd have been the hanging chair of the 19 or the 2000 election, right? We'd have had this un- incomplete game. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, I mean, we would have literally either had to fly back to Philadelphia or I don't know how the game would have been completed if they called that game that night. It would have been. a, And then, you know, that we read it was about three hundred thousand dollars, three hundred fifty thousand for the gate. You know, all of those kinds of ramifications were processed through my head. It was like, holy shit, this is not going to be good. Not to mention the, the black eye that it would have given the building and and the black eye that would have given the, the contractor in the building, which happened to be me, by the way. So <laughs> all of this went through my head, you know. So the comedy of it is, at the end of the day, uh, I ultimately, in a panic state, uh, said, hold on, let me go up there and myself. And so I went flying upstairs as fast as I could, went, you know, went out there, went up, went up outside and figured out that 
it didn't look to me like there was a leak. And so, it, and, I, and if there was, it was raining so damn hard, the wind was blowing so hard, I, I couldn't see it. But when I came back in the building and said, you know, it doesn't have add up. And I, and I realized that what was happening was the water was blowing, it was blowing so hard and raining. So we had two inches, of, we, had, we were getting about an inch of rain an hour at that point. That's how hard it was raining, which was pretty, pretty intense. And, um, and they actually had some flooding at, at that time out in other parts of Sacramento. But the short of it is that um, I realized, you know, I, I just realized I wasn't going to solve it on the outside. It better come up. So I came up with the idea of a diaper. That was it. You know, the rest of it's history. I mean, we just we just went out, we grabbed a banner, we turned it into a a, a, a little diaper arrangement under where the leak was, and then filled it up with towels to absorb the water for the five minutes it took to end the game. And that was it. Yeah, you're right, though, Doug. That's, I probably had, I swear to God, I've had 30,000 people come up to me and say I was there that night. Well done. I'm more famous for that than I am for, the, for bringing the team here. <laughs> you know, Greg, I think the amazing thing when I when we talked when I was filming with you for Small Market Big Heart is that you went up there without a harness. You didn't have a rope or anything, right? You just started walking the steel. Yeah, I-beam. but it wasn't that big of a deal. First off, I was that was I was used to doing that kind of thing in my life when I used to walk panels like that at the top, but it was a lot narrower than that I-beam was up there. The second thing was, there was a, 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 there was a piece of, uh, there, was a, there was a cable that actually went across about belt level. And if you look really close, you'll see that it was, there was a cable. So the issue at hand was just hanging on. And I can tell you it was 85 feet is what the height of that I was standing. So the, the, my biggest problem up there, it was so damn hot up there. I was, I mean, I, there was so much sweat on the beam me up there sweating and uh. dripping water on the team i i realized my biggest problem here is, is just trying to make sure that i'm vertical you know <laughs> so that was i was my biggest fear i mean there was no problem with me being out of the theme there's no I was, I was just focused on what i was trying to accomplish and just trying to get through it and make sure that i didn't make a mistake like slip you know wasn't looking for a lot of trauma drama i just wanted to get get the game back going again, make sure that we had the problem solved. And I actually ended up, you know, watching us lose from my suite. I mean, I literally got it fixed, went back down. You know, they had the timeout when there was a couple, like another minute or two went by, there was another timeout. But, you know, we were up by five when the break happened and, and uh, we ended up losing the game. And it was Derek Smith, ironically enough, who came back and turned the game around in the last three or four minutes. So uh, there wasn't anything good that came out of that game for me, I can tell you. Nothing. <laughs> 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 yeah, I gave Charles Barkley a minute to uh, to recover and, and get ready to destroy you. Well, I mean, it was, I think the delay, because we had it on film, I think it was 38 minutes long. Um, so, I mean, you were up there for quite a while trying to figure this thing out. Uh, but, you know, it's a it's a good story. It's a good moment in, in Kings basketball history where it really does help put you on the map. Well, I, I don't know about me. That put Sacramento on the map. You mean I'm not, look, it didn't do anything for me, so to speak. I mean, it was it was uh, we lost the game, and, and uh, I see to your point. I guess about fixing the building, but the irony of that thing is is that the, the thing that's more interesting about Sacramento on the map is that that story ended up going worldwide because that was back at the genesis of CNN and headline news. And I can tell you that the financier of the bank, Fuji Bank in Tokyo, uh-huh. actually saw me up on that beam. No kidding. And they ended up forcing me to get, they forced us to get key man wow. because they thought I was nuts, which is, of course that was already known anyway. <laughs> 
All right, we don't want to keep you all day, Greg. Uh, I think the one, the one thing I, I would want to know is, do you? Uh, you've been through this. You've been through the fights at City Council. You've been through all the, you know, trying to raise money in California. Can Sacramento support another major league franchise? And I don't mean MLS because I think MLS is a is a different beast. Uh, can they? Can this city? Well, MLS it? is a slam dunk. I mean, I think MLS. If they bring that franchise here, we will be probably the best fan supported franchise that the MLS has, in the no country, doubt, without a doubt. Because, yeah, because there's no. I think there's probably a much stronger soccer contingent here than there has been a basketball contingent. So I think the play for the soccer team. Is is great, okay? I think that this, I think, and the stadium's not very big. Hell, it's about the size of the arena. So, I think that uh, the reality of it is that that will be a sold out franchise forever if they ever if they award the franchise. Our bigger problem is the corporate support and the the depth of the of the uh, this market from a business standpoint to support what these guys are trying to do, and that's I think what makes it a little bit more challenging. That's why the depth of the pockets of these guys I think is so important to. MLS is that this is not a market that's that deep. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. look, look what David has. Yeah. David Stern brought three billionaires in from outside of Sacramento to make that franchise secure in Sacramento. Think about that. Greg is an, uh, as a, no, as I say, Greg is an ex Sacramento King. I want to thank you for all your sacrifices, my friend, because the organization has changed my life and it wouldn't have happened without uh, the great Greg Lukenville. Thank you very much, sir. Well, I got news for you, brother. It's a freaking joy having you part of the party. Let me tell you, that was the, that was the most <laughs> fun that any, any aspect, and I wasn't there for, for it, and the, and the Maloofs got lucky. The guy that really uh, pulled that together predominantly was Jim Thomas. And um, uh, and when I was just when I was partying is when we ended up making the, the uh, this one, I, I actually was the, last, the guy that approved the trade for, for uh, Mitch Richmond to... Uh, it bring in Chris Weber just before he flipped the franchise to Jim Thomas, and then he inherited that deal. So um, that's what got the ball rolling with Jim, and then he brought in uh, oh, I forgot the guy that was the general manager. Jeff uh, you guys Petrie, know. yeah, Jeff uh, Petrie, yeah, Jeff Petrie that put you guys put that thing together, and then uh, and and Jeff was a genius at, the, at what he pulled off timing wise, and and had the right concept and and the insights for, uh, and he was really kind of far ahead of his time. Of, a deep thinker in the basketball world, obviously. And so that was great, Doug. So it was, it was an honor to have you playing here, brother. It really was. I mean, you were, you brought a lot of energy, defensiveness, and grit to the party, which I think was uh, was the glue. Sometimes you have a guy in a franchise that's a glue that holds it together. You were a guy that, when I when I had the team, uh, it was Mike Woodson, and I didn't realize that until he left. And when he and, mm-hmm. and I, we should have never traded him, and I regret I regret that until the day I die that we traded Woodson for Derek Smith. But that's the way yeah. life goes, you know. So I'm sorry for that, and yeah. I've tried to apologize to Mike personally for that a couple times since. That I wasn't the guy making the basketball decisions, but I, in, in, in retrospect, I wish I would have had more of an interest and experience in that. I would just trusted other people's judgment more than my own because I wasn't a basketball guy. I'd never seen an NBA game in my life before I bought the team here. Wow. Never, never seen an NBA game before you bought one. That's a, that's an interesting thought. All well, right. But that tells you a little bit of the anti-business battlefield I was in, and that's how crazy the environment was. It's, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you know, I had to bring the team to get the, the property zone that, that was already zoned that got, that got reverse zoned. I mean, the, the politics is crazy. And, and, and the reality of it was is that if you looked at at, at the, our history, okay, we were so much more deserving of that. We were we were 
really epicenter of the planet between 1848 and, and 1869. There was a 20-year period in there that we were the epicenter of the planet. What happened to Sacramento after that? Think about it. I mean, we're the gold rush and the people that tie, we're the people that tore, that tied together the Marco Polo dream to go east to the, you know, manifest destiny concept from Washington, Lincoln, and, and Jefferson to go west. Okay, we're the city that did it. And it wasn't, it wasn't that the east came west. It's the Theodore Judah and the Big Four took Sacramento east. And so we tied the Pacific Ocean to you know, the northern half of, of the country with the Transcontinental Railroad, and that created the Northwest Passage to unified the world in trade for the first time in history in the Northern Hemisphere. That's what happened here. And so everybody knew who Sacramento was from 1849 to 1869. Everybody knew who Sacramento was. And we became one of the bigger markets in the United States, and, and the destiny for a lot of, and the, and, and the, the, tra- the travel, travel, transportation destiny for a lot of people for, you know, for decades. And it was, and this is an amazing place to live. I think you would agree with that, Doug, and probably you too, James. So, you know, we're very blessed to have what we have here. And obviously the Bay Area is starting to figure that out, but that's more economic than it is quality of life. We need to raise the bar in the quality of life here. Nothing's changed in that regard. Okay. And I hope we get the soccer team because it's going to be, it's going to be a tough nut to crack if we don't. Uh, It's going to be a tougher nut to crack down the road. The longer this takes for us to grow up, the harder it's going to get. Well, I think we'll get there eventually because, but it won't be in our lifetimes, but we'll get there. I mean, historically, capital cities always outgrow the coast cities. Think about that. And we will eventually, but not, it'll be, it might be another 100, 150 years before we're still above water. <laughs> Happy trails, guys. Let's, let's call it a day. All right. <laughs> the incomparable Greg Lukenville. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care, guys.